Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to another episode of the Inspired Table podcast. I'm your host, Jordana Levine, and today I'm joined by Katie Manitsis. Katie was actually on the podcast in 2017. I think it was season four. Yeah, season four it would have been. We spoke about Ayurveda women's cycles and the moon and I know so many of you resonated with that conversation especially um, the link between menstrual cycles and the phase that the moon is in. Katie Minitsis is an advanced level Jivamukti yoga teacher and wise earth Ayurveda master teacher. She's also qualified in Kundalini yoga. She's a doula. Um, She's been teaching yoga for over 20 years and her passion is in yogic philosophy. And her new book, Mindful Living, is about just that. It's everyday teachings and spiritual practices for a sacred and happy life. Life. We cover many of the themes in the book during this episode, and I just know you're going to love it. Katie is full of so much wisdom, so much knowledge, and so much passion for the work that she does. I thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation with her, and I know you're equally going to enjoy listening to it. If you do enjoy it, as always, I would love if you take a screenshot on your phone share it to your Instagram stories so your friends can see how much you love it and they can listen to it too. Make sure you tag me at Jordana Levine and tag Katie at at Katie Minitsis so that we can both share it on our Instagram stories. All of the sharing. love to start I know that you were recently in India was it the one time or have you been there twice in the last uh I've just been there once I'm going back again fairly soon but I've just been there once okay Um, so what what were you what were you doing over there I was leading a retreat um I co-taught it with a dear friend of mine um we've been teaching together for many years another chief mukti yoga teacher um and it was the most divine experience because he organized absolutely everything and I just got to be a total rock star diva and show up and teach and be completely looked after um and literally like collected from the airport and you know driven to the hotel and then (laughs) a chai was placed in my hand and a delicious vegan meal was laid before me and um yeah it was the best group they were so excited and inspired and into all the teachings and I felt you know, my teaching felt really strong. We just had a really amazing time. It was really great. Oh, that's so beautiful. How long did that go for? That was 10 days. Um, and it was it was beautiful because India, have you you've spent time in India? Yeah, I've spent time yeah. in India in the south, um, right. but on my own solo. So it was a very interesting experience. But yes. Yes. India Continue. can be really hard work is yes. what I was just about to say. <laughs> yeah. It's like... It's all of the highs and all of the beauty and all of the sacred 
divine energy and just really difficult, challenging, gritty, full on confronting. Yeah. Um, all in one go, all in one day, sometimes all in one hour even. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th- there was some of that, but actually, I've, I mean, I've been to India many, many times. So I've had, I have lots of India stories and experiences, but this particular recent trip was much more of the divine and the sacred and the flow than the confronting and the gritty. So it was, it was pretty special. Oh, that's amazing. There's something, well, you tell me, what, what do you feel is the, um, added benefit I guess is the word of teaching the philosophies and the teachings of yoga in India compared to when you're in Australia yeah it's I mean the thing about India is I feel like every time I get off the plane even just even in the airport there's just a different vibration and I know that can sound a little bit kind of um you know just a little bit pretentious almost but I I feel it I actually feel Mm. it Um, and it's just like you know like I said there's a lot about India that's confronting and challenging I don't want to wrap it all up in this kind of like glowing rainbow but um, there's a there's a sense of the sacred in every day and there's a feeling of divinity and um, and you know religious almost practice and and faith imbibing and imbuing every single part of everyday life it's like the thing I always say to people the difference between India and sort of like the western world is that where we are you know the thing that we ask people to find out about who they are is we say what do you do you know it's like what you what you do defines you what your job is what your work is it's very much that defining question whereas in India the taxi driver or the person in the shop or, you know, the person that you get chatting to in the line at the railway station, they want to know about your religion and what you believe and who your God is. Mm. That's the kind of opening party line for, um, for uh, like, chat. And I just think that really says a lot. That speaks to the foundation of Indian society and culture. And I love that. I'd always rather talk about God than talk about, you know, how I make my money <laughs> God, it's such a contrast isn't it because it would be considered quite rude to ask someone yes that here. absolutely invasive and private and yeah. that's the other beautiful thing about India is there's no boundaries no. I mean you know it's a country of millions of people all living on top of each other literally and um and there's no sense of there's no real sense of privacy it's it's there's no it's a totally different culture in that regard um, which as someone who grew up in England was quite confronting for me in the beginning, but then very quickly, really refreshing. Because what comes with that lack of privacy and that lack of boundaries is also a total lack of judgment. Mm. They're very open-minded and very interested, genuinely interested to hear about different cultures, different perspectives, different beliefs um, in a, in a very uh, non-dogmatic, non-judgmental way. Uh, and that's another difference. That's another big cultural difference, which I think is really beautiful. What was your first um, India experience? Haha. <laughs> um, I went to <laughs> India first when I was 16 years old. I went with um, my best friend from school and her older brother, who um, somehow took us under his wing. And um, so young. So young. <laughs> so young um and we just had a wild wild eight week adventure roaming india buses trains uh you know high himalayas ashrams buddhist monasteries uh yeah it was it was wild did you have (laughs) did you have an interest in yoga at that age i had a longing to go to india i was i had a picture of the taj mahal 
on my bedroom wall next to all the pictures of pop stars that I had crushes on. Yeah, wow. It was just in me from so young. I couldn't, I was obsessed with the place and I have been ever since. I just love it. I've, I mean, I do, I really feel like I spent past lives in India. Yeah. I feel more at home there sometimes than I do in the place that I grew up in. Yeah, that's And so I go there and I hear the language. I can't speak Hindi. I don't, you know, I have li- very limited Sanskrit, but I listen to the music, I hear the language and I just feel at home. The That's food, so I love the food, yeah. Have you have your children been to India? No. So I went every year, sometimes more than once a year, from the age of 16 to the age of 25. Wow. Um, so multiple, multiple trips. And then I just completely stopped going because I started having babies. And I have seen the poverty and seen the, you know, poor sanitation and the poor health and all the disease that is there. And it is there. It's a reality. Um, and I chose to immunize my children slowly. They're on a delayed immunization schedule. Um, so I didn't want to take them for, for those first few years. I just felt like it was too risky. Mm. Uh, and I've only just now started going back. I went last year. I was there obviously a few weeks ago. I'm going again in April. So I'm going again very soon. So I'm, yeah, India and I are back on. We've rekindled <laughs> our love affair. And um, the kids haven't been yet, but I will take them. That's definitely going to be on the agenda. Are they interested in it like do they ask questions about India um they look they love to travel um and it depends which child you're talking about so I've got four and they're all in different phases my eldest is in a bit of a rejecting all things yoga at the moment he's a bit embarrassed um he's having a sleepover for his birthday party um he's turning 12 in a few weeks and he asked me could I please take down some of the pictures of Krishna (laughs) at home before his friends come over (laughs) Um, so that's where he's at I mean he likes it he'll still come chanting with me and he's interested very interested in the teachings but there's also that social you know peer pressure yeah he doesn't he doesn't want mum to be weird no so are you going to take the pictures down yeah look we had some discussion about it I said I would and I will um but you know I also want him to honor who I am as a person uh, just as I respect and honor who he is um but it's that whole thing of keeping him on board and keeping him close to me, not alienating him. So it's like cho- choosing my battles. Absolutely. Um, and that's one that I'm happy to kind of... Compromise like, on. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so, Katie, you have... Ju- like, speaking of living in India and being in India, submerging yourself in India, you've actually just written a book. Um, it's called Mindful Living. Do you want to walk us through um, the themes of the book? Sure. Um, Well, the book is predominantly about the idea of sadhana and sadhana is a Sanskrit word, um, comes from the ancient Indian language of Sanskrit and it means conscious spiritual practice in everyday life. That's the best translation I can give. And so really what the book is about is bringing the ancient teachings of yoga, of um, the indigenous Indian healing and medicine system Ayurveda into our everyday lives in modern contemporary Australian culture. Uh, And it's been my experience that very commonly we have lots of goals and ideals about how we might like to live our lives, you know, what we would like our meditation practice to look like, what we would like our eating habits and rituals and our diet to consist of. Um, And then there's the reality and often the, the fantasy version of ourselves, what we'd like to be doing and the real version, what we're actually doing there's quite a discrepancy between the two. Mm. And so I wrote this book very much um, as a kind of bridge between 
the aspirational and the reality. Uh, and, and a lot of it includes, a lot of it is the teachings and the practices I do in my own personal everyday life as a busy mother, business owner, um, you know, engaged member of society and our, and our communities and just, you know, how to maintain a sense of the conscious and the, a sense of the spiritual in everyday life in amongst all the busyness. Because, mm. I mean, that's the reality of it, right? We're not living in a cave in the Himalayas or, you know, in an ashram. We're living everyday lives in the physical world, dealing with everyday Western problems. That's it. Exactly yeah. right. And and the thing that's really exciting for me is that these teachings I have found in my own life, and I've been practicing yoga for over 20 years now, they are incredibly relevant to this time and to this culture. You know, we shouldn't think that because we're not living in India or because we're not living 500 or even 5,000 years ago, that somehow these teachings don't apply to us. The, mm. the teachings are, they offer universal truth. They offer, um, you know, mandates like, try to live non-violently, try to be truthful, try not to steal, try not to be manipulative with your sexuality, um, try not to be greedy. They're universal teachings and and they're as applicable now, if not more so now, than they were when they were first offered. And it, it's just our job as teachers and guides of these practices at this time to make that relevance known and to kind of unpack it and help people apply it in their daily lives and that's what I've really tried to do in this book beautiful so you've touched on there's a lot of different things that you touch on in the book but there's a few things that I'd really love to focus on because I find them so fascinating Um, and the first thing is our ancestry and the significance that our lineage plays in who we are as people and how we show up in the world. So where do people start with looking back through their ancestry and the significance that it plays in their own life? Yeah, so one of the things my teacher, Maya Tawari, um, who is a Vedic nun, she's an Indian woman who comes from a very, very long line of teachers and gurus going back literally hundreds of years and I've had the great privilege of having her as my teacher one of the things that she has taught me is that um, in in healing our lives and in applying these teachings of Ayurveda and yoga into our lives it's helpful for us to turn to our own ancestral background rather than appropriating culture or ancestry from another culture so um, an example of that can be in our food rather than um, feeling like we need to change to, I don't know, like a Ayurvedic Indian diet or a macrobiotic diet or some other diet that isn't of your own cultural ancestry, she suggests that we can find a beautiful opportunity for healing by looking back at our own ancestral food and diet and cultural um offerings now for some of us who've grown up in a western culture we might not find that if we only go back one or two generations like if i go back to my childhood there was a lot of 
convenience food, a lot of frozen food, a lot of packaged food. I was kind of the first generation. You know, my mother was a working mother. She was a, she was a great mum, but she was busy and um, she did the best that she had with the, the resources she had available to her. But certainly the diet I ate as a child wasn't particularly whole food based or particularly, um, won't be you know, healing anything. <laughs> won't be healing much. No. So I need to go back two or three generations. And then I get to my grandmother and my great grandmother who grew up um, in the Austrian um, Tyrol in the mountains. And there is an abundance of healing herbs, of healing foods, of ancestral recipes. I've got, for example, a beautiful old uh, mortar and pestle that has been handed down to me from my great-grandmother through my mother's line. Um, and I use that now to grind my own and to make my own um, preparations in the kitchen. And there's something about the oh, just the act of holding that utensil in my hands and using it knowing that my great-grandmother used it in her kitchen up in the mountains which I've been fortunate enough to visit um when she was creating food for her family there's some power in that there's something um you know really really precious and magical in that in that sense of lineage and that sense of ancestry and then I remember my grandmother making recipes like um she used to make a, a casserole that used a lot of paprika, very sort of Hungarian influence up there in the mm. Austrian um, mountains. And my son, one of my children, my son absolutely loves that food now. If I make that casserole for him, like that Hungarian-style goulash, and I make it vegetarian-style, um, he just, that's his favourite thing to eat. Yeah. And I love that thread. Um, and it's not that every meal is informed by that or that, you know, there's a whole kind of... Um, model that I'm following based on that way of cooking it's just threads of that connection to ancestry I remember my remember my grandmother rolling out phyllo pastry and making um, apple strudel like big big batches of apple strudel in the kitchen when I was a young kid and um, you know sometimes I make that now for my children and I have that memory and it's in my it's in my hands it's in my DNA it's part of of my ancestry it's very powerful and mother Maya my teacher says that even if those foods aren't necessarily the most healthy, like we, you know, you wouldn't identify apple strudel as being a health food mm. because of that link and because of that resonance for me and that memory and attachment to my childhood and those positive memories, mm. there's a, there's something that filters through there that's enormously healing more than way more than the the actual constitution of the food yes if that makes sense oh absolutely and I mean do you think that you need to necessarily have the memories attached to it because I know for example you know a lot of our bloodline is um eastern european and my grandparents were in south africa when I was growing up and we went over a few times and my grandmother would cook for me but you know I wasn't eating that food growing up but all of my siblings and I have this like real um love of anything pickled anything vinegary all the Russian foods you know we're we're so drawn to them and for me although there isn't specific memories around it there's almost like a vibrational recollection of it when I eat it I just feel comforted and at home and yeah like you said this vibrational healing that happens even though pickles themselves aren't necessarily a health food yes yes absolutely yeah no I I totally understand what you're saying and I think Mm. um 
there's there's healing in that there really is it's quite remarkable um and it could it wouldn't necessarily even be with food it could be uh with music or yes. artwork or even i mean if you're into fashion even with like an item of clothing like i've got a couple of my grandmother's um vintage pieces and if i ever wear those or even just pull them out of my wardrobe and look at them i just feel such a a sense of connection to mm. or jewelry jewelry is another great one family heirlooms that have you know pieces of jewelry that have been passed down such a powerful vibration and a and a connection there and because we're living in a time and a culture that's so disconnected and we live in such a cultural kind of smorgasbord of um many of our ancestral patterns are being diluted or diminished these these um these items or these practices or these foods that we hold on to become very precious. They become very dear to us. I've got a um, deck of tarot cards that were passed down through the female lineage of my mother's side. So her great-grandmother, grandmother, mother, mother, then then me. So I I think I'm fifth in line to them. Oh my goodness. Yes. And the vibration. I want a reading reading from those cards. Totally. Because, (laughs) you know, when I try and do a reading on another deck of cards, it just doesn't feel the same to me. It it has a completely different resonance to it. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite incredible. What do you think then for a lot of people, because Australia is a relatively new country. So if you go back you know, a few generations, most people have come from somewhere else. Um, what do you think about the ancestry on the land that you're living mm. on? Does that play a part? I think it plays an enormous part. And I think part of the questioning around that is, are you a visitor or are you considering this your home space? And I've been through a very interesting journey with that where as I've lived in Australia for longer, it's been 15 years this year and I intend to be here. You know, my, I'm raising my children here. Um, I have come to have more and more of a personal inquiry about my relationship to this land. And I've actually started to fall in love with this land more. I mean, I, I grew up in the English countryside and I love the English countryside deeply. Um, but I've started to really fall in love with the Australian flora and fauna and the indigenous Australian plants and herbs. Um, And then, of course, there's this huge question as a white English, um, you know, for someone that comes from a very much a colonial background, um, there's huge question about indigenous Australia and my relationship to the land in that regard. And I feel increasingly this real sense of responsibility to be engaged in the healing work which is a huge a huge phenomenal project around indigenous australia and you know we are um we are involved in a generation moving forward that has this weight of responsibility for healing and for reconnection to the land and for making amends and for finding ways of moving forward from a very very damaged very fractured situation that as you say is new this is not this is a this is a a relatively recent um atrocity a relatively recent um you know horrific uh like amalgamation of lots of different energetic black holes really yeah and there's a lot of work to do for all of us from both sides 
or from all sides. It's a multifaceted situation. So I think anyone that's involved in the healing arts, anyone that talks about herbal medicine, about healing from the land and about ancestry living on this land in Australia at this time, the um, indigenous conversation is part of that. And I write about that in the book. I write about um, some very concrete and practical things that we can do to make steps forward uh, and to just start to begin that dialogue around making amends. I mean, one of them really, really simple is practicing the acknowledgement of country. It's something I'm trying to do more and more when I teach workshops, when I lead retreats, beginning very simply with acknowledgement of the country that we're on and acknowledging the elders past and present. Yeah, it's so powerful, isn't it? I feel I feel like um, that acknowledge. well, this is actually just a really a personal misinterpretation of mine I always thought that you know to pay respect and acknowledgement to the people of the land that you had to have some sort of um, indigenous connection to do so but yeah. that's not the case at all is it no so there's no. a difference between acknowledgement of country and welcome to country and people are very often confused between those two and I was for a while too so being welcome to country has to be done by an indigenous person um, and that often happens at the beginning of big events or, you know, that, like that, that's, a, that's a ceremony. Yeah. Um, and we as, um, you know, white settlers or, you know, non-Indigenous people, we, we don't have capacity to welcome to country. But we certainly do and should have capacity to acknowledge country, to acknowledge yes. the elders past and present and, and, and continuing in future um, and to give thanks for the practices, particularly any kind of spiritual practices or healing endeavours that take place on Aboriginal land. So in terms of incorporating um, our personal ancestry and the ancestry of the land that we inhabit into our daily practices, um, you've spoken about food and maybe um, connecting with items within your family history but what are some ways that we can incorporate that into a daily practice i look i think daily practice is going to vary enormously for each individual person and it's going to depend very much on the time that you have and what means you have available to you um, a couple of things i'll say about daily practice first of all in general i've found that daily practice is most effective for people if they keep it so short and sweet simple because the power in daily practice comes through repetition. My teacher Sharon Gannon from Jivamukti Yoga says, through repetition, the magic is forced to arise. And when we do something consistently over a long period of time, and I'm talking weeks, months, years, then we start to see real transformation. So it could be a practice as simple as lighting a candle. I mean, literally, when I wake up every morning, one of the very first things I do is light a candle on my little sacred space, my little altar at home, and I give thanks. I give thanks for my health and well-being, for my children, my family, um, and for the ancestors, past and present. And within that, I include not only my own personal ancestors, but also the ancestors of the place that I live in, you know, the, the ancestors of the land. And that applies wherever you live in the world. We're constantly surrounded by the energies, not only of the lives that we're living and that are unfolding in our daily experience, but also the ancestry of the land that we're living on and all of the elders, the teachers, past and present. Um, and we can call on that and it can happen in a in a few seconds by lighting a candle and offering an acknowledgement. 
Yeah, beautiful. And what about um, what about the communication of ancestry with your children? My children, like so many in this upcoming generation, are growing up in a real mixed bag of cultures. Their father's Greek Orthodox, I'm English, they're living in Australia, and I have this very strong interest in Indian uh, tradition and yogic philosophy. So it's a whole mixed bag. But I see that in the context of a much broader conversation, which is, it's funny, I was writing a post about this on social media the other day, and it really struck me. So um, my son, my eldest son, who's 12, um, went, he, he, he practices um, NRL. He, he plays NRL, so rugby sports. And, um, it, you know, it's pretty aggressive, and he's just started doing contact. So it's like they're really, like, laying into each other. It's pretty full on. It's certainly not nonviolent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there he was. I mean, he's growing up in Newtown, which is, you know, one of the biggest, most sort of cosmopolitan hub world, um, like very, you know, openly kind of gay communities and very open-minded, like huge sort of bohemian, like what you could call alternative community. So he's living in a bit of a bubble, but... He was there ready to go last night for um, training in his NRL uniform with his like headgear on and his uh, mouth guard in his mouth. And I looked at him and he, his, he had on his fingernails were painted purple glitter nail polish. <laughs> and I just to me, that image of him of going off to to do his footy training like that was the absolute epitome of the generation that he's growing up in mm. he is a mixture of so many things and it's effortless and seamless and to him there are no contradictions in that he can equally walk into the greek orthodox church which is part of his father's ancestral lineage and light a candle for his grandmother who was a devout practitioner of the greek orthodox faith as he can come chanting with me and chant the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, which has been superimposed from India into my cultural tradition as a Western yogi. Um, he is comfortable in, um, you know, younger, with a younger generation, with an older generation, um, in uh, a very completely multicultural, most of his friends are of some kind of mixed race heritage. Uh, and so I think that the, the point I'm making is that this generation coming up now more than ever before is is diverse. Not only is it multicultural and coming from a, a real range of ancestral backgrounds, it's also totally transcending gender, uh, sexuality, mm. cultural, all the divides are just blowing up. And what that does is it gives the most beautiful opportunity for us to draw from and for that generation to draw from what truly resonates. You want to paint your nails purple? Go ahead, paint your nails purple, you know, it, it, and, and go to NRL and do this and be that. You can be, you can draw from the bits that work for you. And so we create true dharma. You know, dharma is another beautiful Sanskrit word that means to find your path in life, to walk your true path. And when we have that openness, one of the beautiful benefits of that is that we can truly be who we are. Now, there's also a downside there, and the flip side is that we get overwhelmed with choice and possibility, and it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there's so many options and so many beautiful teachings and backgrounds to draw from. On the other hand, we can lose sense of who we are because of this overwhelming um, like choice and uh, overwhelming sense of the what is possible. And so I think another job as a parent at this time 
is to help kids find some focus, uh, find some things to, to sort of attach to and stick to so that it doesn't just become a little bit of this, a little bit of that and no kind of sense of commitment or focus for anything. Yeah. Well, there is a fine line there, isn't there? Isn't there? Because I was about to say to you, oh, you know, it's so wonderful that, you know, there's a space for your children to be held to explore all of these different um, avenues and different interests and different faiths um, because there's there's not always that amount of freedom for children growing up in certain families. Um, but at the same time, you're right, when there's so much to choose from, there can be a lost opportunity to immerse yourself yes. in specific things and find what truly resonates with you. Yeah. And one of the yeah. things it says in the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of my favorite spiritual texts, ancient spiritual texts from India, is the medicine for this time, the thing that is most needed at this time for us is focus. Now, if you ask people what it is that they want in their spiritual lives, most people will say things like love or peace or, um, you know, connection. These are the goals that we hold in mind. Um, but actually what we're told in the, in the scriptures is what we need is focus and if you think about it what many of us lack is the ability to focus and we see technology particularly deteriorates that capacity within us um, and so I think that where the younger generation will find benefit in drawing from all of these different cultures and drawing from all of these different possibilities and opportunities is in finding some focus and sticking with something and having discipline because if you if you lack discipline and focus uh, it goes back to that idea of daily spiritual practice you've got to show up again and again and again for the practices even on the days that they're boring even on the days that you don't feel like it and and part of that is the energy of focus and that's where we start to reap reward i mean you know you've just written a book you know how much focus and energy that takes you have oh. to apply you have to show up and apply yourself right and or it then, does not get written that's it and then you mine the gold but if you don't have that focus you don't keep showing up then there's trouble ahead and i do see in the younger generation it's really hard they want there's a lot of um desire for instant gratification and one of the big lessons that is going to become more and more important is apply yourself be diligent be focused be uh be willing to show up and do the work again and again I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about Dharma and your interpretation of Dharma um, in this like modern society that we live in now, because I feel like there's this real shift at the moment, and I'd love your opinion on it, where people feel like their Dharma, their life path needs to be what they do for a living, something mm. that they make money from. What what are your feelings on that? Because, I mean, you are living out your dharma through the work that you do in the world. But do you think that that's always the case or needs to be the case? No, I absolutely don't. Um, mm. I think that you can find your dharma in whatever you do. And I think that one of the one of the most important things about understanding dharma or your life's purpose is it doesn't have to be something huge and awesome and um, you know, you don't have to found an NGO or no. climb a mountain or write a musical masterpiece. Um, it, it's really about immersing yourself in the life that you are living and bringing the best of yourself to that. Now, there's one caveat. If you're doing something 
for a living to earn your money that really, really goes against your sense of ethics and integrity, then that's probably going to be what we call adharmic. It's going to create a lot of conflict. So, you know, if you're a vegan and you have to work in a butcher's shop, there's going to be such a deep that's an extreme example there's going to be be such a a sad life um, yeah there's going to be such a deep conflict there that you're not going to be able to overcome that so so there might be a real dissonance that has to be healed but for most of us you know most people earn their living doing something relatively sort of mundane and relatively sort of karmically neutral um and there's absolutely an opportunity to find your dharma within that and also in the life that you lead outside of that Um, I always give the example um, when I'm asked this question of a bus driver that I used to have um, when I used to catch the bus in London. I lived in London for many years and I used to catch the bus from North London to South London every day. And I'd very often have the same driver because I used to catch the bus at the same time to go to work. And this guy, you know, he was a London bus driver. There's probably not a job that is um, less exciting than that in terms of you know, the weather's crappy. People in London generally aren't that socially engaged. It's it's, it's raining, everyone's looking down, people are grumpy, it's first thing in the morning, it's freezing cold. It's not a it's not a high vibe situation. Um, and this guy brought so much love and energy into his job. He knew everybody's name that got onto the bus. If he didn't know your name, he'd ask and he'd chat and he he knew people's stories and he he got people talking amongst themselves. Like he he turned that bus ride into a social situation every morning and, mm. and it was remarkable. And I've, he has stayed with me as an example of a person that lives in Dharma um, for my whole life. This was years and years and years ago because he was a bus driver. He wasn't doing anything special, but he bought his presence and his energy into his job and it was uplifting for everyone. And that is the opportunity of Dharma. It's not really about what you're doing unless what you're doing creates huge ethical conflict. It's about the energy that you bring to what you're doing. It's the integrity that you bring. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that because I really struggled with that for a very long time. I've spoken about it on the podcast before, actually. Um, this idea of turning your Dharma into your into your career can put so much pressure not just on what you do for a living but on what you feel is intrinsically your purpose and your life path and it becomes to it it starts to become this really kind of muddy area and sometimes it's not worth the yeah I agree and actually yes my teachers at Jiva Mukti Yoga um Sharon Gannon and David Life they actively advise against so they run a yoga teacher training program and they advise against their graduates solely making a living through yoga. So they say, of course, go out and teach yoga and make money from it. But it's also their advice to have another strand of income, another career, so that you're not solely dependent on what really is your own spiritual practice as your main source of income. Because exactly as you say, it gets muddied very easily. And if there's a pressure on you financially to perform, and that crosses a boundary and gets blurred in with your own personal spiritual practice and your sense of wanting to serve, um, that can be really tough. So, I mean, you know, I've built a career that's definitely around my passion for yoga, but it's a multifaceted career. You know, I write and I teach and I teach in different areas. Um, and I do, you know, I have a few strands of different things that I do. And that's so that I don't have a financial pressure in any one area. And so that I don't have to feel that my work and my need to make money and my capacity to make money 
are too closely bound with my personal spiritual practice because I think that can get very difficult. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, One of the things that you do so beautifully, Katie, and I would love to talk about it more, is holding space for women. So aside from being a yoga teacher, you're also a doula. um, And you have started to do a lot more women's only work is that right yes yeah absolutely yeah so where do you think where do you think the um the drawing is for you there like what draws you into that kind of work and what do you think the benefit is for women to be taking part in more women's only practices yeah so in terms of my own personal um movement towards that work there's a couple of things one is I've got four sons, so there's a lot of masculine <laughs> energy in my life. Yeah. Um, and I've naturally been more and more drawn to the women's world in my work. I think literally just to balance that out, it's the yin and the yang. Um, the other one is that I see at the moment this real new wave of what it means to be an empowered woman and what it means to be a feminist, really. Um, and I'm really interested in how women step into their power. Um, And I actually think this is going to be the subject of my next book, which I'm tentatively starting to work on now. Um, How women step into their power without becoming angry, without becoming Mm. um, in the masculine. You know, traditionally feminism was about a fight and a cutting through and a sense of empowerment that had a very masculine energy, ironically, attached oh, to it. Yeah. And I am interested in what does the what does the empowered woman who is absolutely firm and solid in her convictions, in her power, in her grace, um, what does she look like? And it, it's very similar to the vegan conversation. You know, there's the angry vegans and now there's the new <laughs> wave, thank goodness, of joyful vegans. Yes. Um, and the joyful vegans are getting a lot more traction than mm. the angry ones ever did. <laughs> Funny um, and that. And the same feminism, you know. Mm, there's the there's the angry feminism is over. And God forbid that you're an angry feminist vegan. Like, you are so finished now. <laughs> totally. It's, it's, all about, it's all about the compassion and the, um, and the uh, strength. So it's not wish-wash. It's not like... Um, there's nothing weaker about it. There's a there's a true dynamic embodied power in women's work at the moment, but it isn't the masculine. It isn't aggressive. It isn't a fight. And that absolutely fascinates me. So that's a so, real focus for my work at the moment. And what, what I notice is one of the ways that we start to heal that dynamic and that we start to um, really dive into what that new paradigm looks like is when women get together in groups without the male without the masculine. It doesn't mean that that's what we want all the time, but there's something like when I run women's circles and I invite women to talk about themselves, talk about what's going on in their lives. And we really start to go deep. It's amazing to me how deep we can go and how open women can be in that safe space of only women. I think that's part of our healing at this time is to come together in groups of only women and, and, and work deeply together. And that may not that may be quite specific to this cultural moment, but I think it's part of what we need in our healing now. What do you think the new wave of um, feminism or f- the f- the feminine um, looks like if it's not that angry, masculine, um, you know, 
attack uh, energy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the million dollar question. That question is the biggest question that's ruminating in my mind at the moment. Like that's my big question right now. I, um, I got divorced last year. My, my marriage came to an end and, um, you know, we had quite a traditional, um, sort of male, female gender stereotype marriage. Um, and I was a homemaker and my husband went out to work and we were raising these four boys. And one of the things that kind of really started to unravel in our marriage, and obviously it's a really multifaceted thing, but was this, um, this gender stereotype, you know, I was really starting to have a lot of questions around that and explore it and, and, and think about what the future looks like for all of us. And what I've noticed for many, many, many of my female friends, and many of them are, you know, in their childbearing years and they're having kids and they're also juggling careers, and is that what's happening is, and it's such a cliche, but unfortunately it's a true cliche, is that women are still running households and they're still doing most of the childcare and they're under pressure to earn money and they're under pressure to perform in their careers. And it's literally like we've created a monster for ourselves. Um, and... I am so fascinated about what it looks like to unpack that and find another way of family dynamics operating. And I know people that are doing it really successfully. Um, and then I'm also interested in what we might call the internal patriarchy. So there's a, a yoga teacher called Guru Jagat who I'm really obsessed with at the moment. She's a Kundalini yoga teacher. She is, she's like the new uh, wave of yoga teachers, particularly in the Kundalini yoga world. She's in her thirties and she is a powerhouse of a woman, like one of the most intelligent, articulate, um, pioneers of women's work that I've ever come across. Uh, and she's writing a book at the moment that is about unpacking the internal patriarchy. And what that means is it's got nothing to do with what's going on on the outside. It's to do with how we think as women, how we frame reality, how we respond to what's going on in our lives. And for many of us, that's deeply, deeply ingrained cultural baggage around our role as women and the way that we've been raised to think and feel and respond. And as we do that internal spiritual work, what, what feminism looks like on the outside starts to change. Um, so, I mean, the real answer is I don't have a complete cohesive answer to that question but that's my big burning question of the moment and I think that's what my next big chunk of work is going to be about. Well I guess for so long women felt that in order to stand up and be seen in the masculine world they had to be in their masculine yeah but I get yeah I guess it's all about painting a new a new picture and and staying in the feminine to stand up to the masculine well not even yes. stand up to the masculine but just find a um a wholeness and a completeness yes. in that yeah. to find a wholeness and completeness within ourselves so that mm. i can dip into my feminine and i can be a nurturing mother and i can dress in a feminine way and i can speak with compassion and kindness and empathy but i can also cut through bullshit i can call it when i see it i can say no I can have both. I can be the, in my masculine and in my feminine and that that can be cyclical and it can change according to what's needed. And that also I might be able to have a partner who can do the same. Yes, I was about to say that. And, it's, you know, that there might yeah. be times that um, 
whether you're in a heterosexual or a homosexual relationship, doesn't this isn't about gender, that there might be times where I can dip in and out of being in my masculine or being in my feminine and that my partner might do the same and that we might work together in that dance. Um, and that can manifest in so many different ways. I mean, that might manifest in the way you run your household and the logistics of parenting. It could even mani- manifest sexually. Um, you know, it's a, it's a constant interplay. And, uh, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be in our intimate relationships with our partners. It might, you might even see that in a work situation, mm. that there might be a place in which women in a working and professional environment bring the feminine, bring that ability to think empathetically, to see the web rather than the straight line into the corporate workspace, for example. But then at the same time, there's also that ability to cut through with a straight line and go from A to B if something more direct and less morphous is needed. That's mm. the new That's the new feminine. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you know, we're a long way off. We've got work to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like we have come, we have come a long way. And I know there's a lot at the moment going on around you know toxic masculinity but I think that we've also come a long way uh, like men have come a long way too you know in this um evolvement of stepping into their feminine and meeting us halfway I agree and I think about that a lot in terms of raising sons and what that means a friend of mine was telling me a story the other day that made me so happy she was talking about how she's got three sons and she had a friend over uh, and he was he was hanging out the washing for her, her male friend. And he one of her sons was watching. And he said to her son, a woman's work is never done. And it was a joke because he was a male hanging out yes. her washing for her. Yeah. And her son didn't get the joke. He he looked at he looked at the guy and he was like, what do you mean a woman's work? Like he just didn't. It was the whole sarcasm of the whole thing was lost yeah. on him. And I thought <laughs> that's the new wave of feminism, yeah. where you know he doesn't even get. The, the reference the reference you know <laughs> yeah. that's what we're working for um and yeah I, you know it's it's this it, this is the next generation the thing that's exciting is that we everything is moving so fast these days social media technology our lives we're just evolving and progressing so quickly and what that means is the healing can happen fast too yes yes and wait yeah like you said, we're still a long way off, but starting to see those little, um, those little points of healing starting to happen, and that's that's how that's how healing um, that's how healing happens. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Small steps. Beautiful. So, Katie, um, I love speaking about <laughs> the book writing process because yes. I've just been through it myself, and I've had quite a few guests on recently who have just written books. So I'd love to talk to you about the process of writing a book while raising four boys. Uh-huh. Um, where did you find the time? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it takes time. I mean, I know with you, um, your writing process was relatively condensed and I was watching you, um, you know, as you were posting on social media about that. And I was really fascinated by that kind of immersive experience. That's my mm. fantasy. You know, I dream of being able to go off and have like a few weeks to myself and just be in that kind of writer's retreat um Mm. that may happen I guess that's like maybe that's my retirement dream (laughs) Um, but right now that that's that's not going to happen for quite some time so it you know it takes time for me um mindful living was a two and a half three year process um which in some ways is great because it gives me plenty of reflection time as I'm writing to 
go back, deliberate, my ideas change and grow. Um, in other ways, it's harder because more of a discipline is required. But I do also find that the creative um, process kind of, it come, it peaks and troughs. You know, sometimes I'm really in it and I'm writing a lot and I'm staying up late at night when the kids are sleeping and I'm kind of in the zone. And then there might be a few weeks that roll by where I really don't do much. Um, and that, yeah, that's just how it rolls for me. I mean, I'm, writing is my thing. Writing is how I process what's going on in my world. It's, you know, some people paint, some people make music, some people, I don't know, dance, whatever, create stuff. I write, I've, you know, I write journals. I always have. Uh, and so it's part of, in, it's part of who I am. It's part of my dharma. It's in me to write. And then I just have to get focused on that and kind of, um, direction that in a way that is cohesive enough that it becomes a book rather than just my, my personal ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how did you find, uh, the publishing process? Because I know that, um, you, had pretty much written the book and then taken the finished manuscript essentially around to different publishers. Was that, was that um, quite a confronting experience for you because there was a sense of completion to the work that you had done, like an, an, and a sense of attachment to it? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I've had the situation before with another book of mine, The Yoga of Birth, where I had a really good publishing deal on the table um, and I ended up withdrawing from it because they wanted me to change the book too much. Mm. Um, and I was very uh, aware that that could happen this time. Uh, and so I'd actually already made the decision in advance that if I didn't get a publisher that wanted to take the book on, ex not exactly as it was, but, you know, pretty much without too much change, then I would self-publish, which is a tough call to make because everybody yeah. wants to get published by a publishing house rather than self-publishing, really, if we're honest. Um, although there are many benefits to self-publishing and I have self-published in the past and I've enjoyed that process. But um, I was just very, very fortunate that Rockpool, who, who published Mindful Living, really did just embrace my vision so deeply. I was so honoured by them. They pretty much took the manuscript as is and just went with it. Um, they even um, hired the illustrator that I wanted to use. They went with my idea for the cover design. I mean, they just honoured my piece of work, like, with such integrity. Um, so, yeah, that's, like, for me, that was just incredible. I felt so good about that. And I feel so good about the book now because it really mm. is the book I wanted to write and the piece of work I wanted to put out into the world. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? I heard so many horror stories <laughs> Yeah, in the lead up to um, writing my book where people were like, oh, you got to watch out for those publishing yeah. companies. They're going to want to change everything. Do you know what it is, though, Jordana? It's, it's so interesting. And you know this. And I've learned this from you. I've learned this from coming to your lunar nights. When you're really, really clear about what you're doing and what you want and you put that out into the world with absolute resolve, it becomes a non-negotiable and the universe mm. comes to the party. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that a ton of times. If I'd gone out and I'd been like, oh, I hope I find a publisher that's going to honour this work and I guess I can compromise on this bit and that bit and, you know, I guess it's really hard and these are the parts I'm less attached to and that vibe, that yeah. manifests a situation of needing to compromise. Whereas mm. if you go out into the world and you say... I want this and I'm going to do it this way. If I don't get this, then this is my plan B and, you know, un 
refusing to compromise, then oftentimes you just get what you ask for. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, it's, it's one thing to teach it and one thing to practice it. Yes. Thank you for the reminder today. I actually <laughs> needed to hear that so badly. <laughs> because I've had quite a few friends that have had babies recently yeah. and they've been speaking about the birth stories that people yes. tell them when yes. they're pregnant. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's horrific. They, they basically say, oh, oh, you're going to experience this during birth and it's yeah. terrible. It's the yeah. worst pain you've ever been in and, oh, wait till you have the baby and you'll never shower again and you'll yes, never enjoy yeah. a hot cup of tea and it's like yeah. people yeah. dump their you know what that, you. that is so specifically with birth I mean I talk about this a lot in my doula work a lot of that is because people have unresolved and unprocessed personal trauma and it's mm. the same with the divorce story yes you know, we're all walking we're not all many people are walking around with unresolved and unprocessed stuff and it comes out in the most inappropriate moments. It comes out in the line at the supermarket to the poor pregnant woman. Um, you know, your own unresolved birthing story that wasn't well supported and wasn't listened to afterwards and processed gets dumped on the poor woman that's about to give birth next week because you've got nowhere else to put it. So there's a personal responsibility that we do the work. You know, I'm, I have worked really hard to heal my divorce story and to be a proactive participant in the journey of healing that. And that mm. creates space for a different, a new beginning. But if you don't do the healing, sure, you bring your old stuff, you bring your old birth story, you bring your old divorce, you bring your whatever into the next situation. And, um, and then you manifest a whole load of toxic poo-poo. Yeah. Well, it becomes, your, it becomes your own vibration. Yeah. And then you share that with others. Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a really good lesson. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank if, you. If people want to get their hands on Mindful Living, what's yes. the best way for them to do that? They can go to my website, which I'm sure you'll put in the show notes, but it's just my name, katiemenitsis.com.au. And on the homepage, there is a link and they can order away. Beautiful. And it's it's in bookstores and... It is, yeah. You should find it in your local and, bookstore. I think yeah. um, it's on all the websites. You should find it. I think it's even going to be in like Kmart and Big W and places like <gasps> yeah. that. Yeah, yeah they've started there. taking Mind Body titles. It's yeah. a big move this year, actually. Uh -huh. yeah, um, and it's, it's also, um, which is really exciting, it's going to be out in the States. I think I'm going to be going over to the US and doing some events later on this year. Um yeah, it's around. It's around. Oh, that's so exciting. And, you know, when you come up to Byron, are you going to do a I bit of the book tour done. up there, do you think? The Byron leg of the tour is done. We did a oh. big event at Krishna Village up in um, northern New South Wales, oh, end of March. Um, oh, I missed it. So, yeah, that one is done. But I'm, I'm up there all the time. I, love, I mean, that part of the world is just one of my absolute favourite places to be. And I teach up at Krishna Village a lot. Um, oh. So... I've got lots of friends, lots of homies in Byron. So, yeah, I will, I'll be there. Yeah, amazing. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Katie. And thank you. I, I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon. I love yes. having you on the podcast. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Jordana. Guess what? I've just released a new podcast show with my good friend, Holly Azapati, and it's called The Middle. All you have to do to find it is search The Middle on your favorite podcast app, hit subscribe so you'll be notified when our first episode airs on April 15. But until then, here is a little teaser of what you can expect. I'm Georgiana Levine.
and I'm Holly as a party. Welcome to The Middle. We're all about celebrating contradictions, light and shade, the funny and serious, but not too serious, pop culture and soul. And rap. Holly loves her rap. We love a juice cleanse, but also an espresso martini. And look, we're not going to try and hide our penchant for wine from you. We froth on woke conversations about life, but also love a bit of reality TV. Mainly dating shows and dancing shows. And oh, do you watch Gogglebox? We reckon it's about time we lighten up and celebrate the humour and play in the everyday. And look, we're probs going to talk about astrology and chakras and my first yoni massage. Yes, I am dying to hear about that. So who are we? Well, other than being closet comedians, astrology-obsessed pop culture junkies... Holly is a Leo, extroverted introvert, and fun fact, doesn't actually listen to podcasts, yet decides to host her own. Nice one, Holly. <laughs> Me too, a T. Jordana is an introverted Gemini, ex-journo, true crime junkie coffee addict. <laughs> You're painting a very interesting picture of me there. I'm imagining tweed, a cigar, and a monocle. Together, we're both sides of the story, gifting you the full picture. And all we ask of you is that you meet us in the middle. Catch our weekly episodes starting April 15, musing on all things life, laughter, and lessons. So I've been thinking about our celebrity couple name. Tell me. Jolly. Brilliant. Or Hordana. Oh, I prefer Hordana. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 